0: The nation's focused on races too close to call in Florida and Georgia, but what about the one in Texas, the largest district in the nation? The latest today on the Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio with support from Rant Group. Software delivered as promised, no surprises. I'm
0: David Brown, an update on the still unsettled contest between incumbent Will Hurd and his Democratic challenger Gina Ortiz Jones. Also, a day after Texas is ordered to pay back more than $30 million for violating laws over special education, evidence emerges that may leave Texas on the hook for another $41 million plus federal penalty. We'll hear why. Plus, a view from the border as thousands of active duty troops take positions. that and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard time as the nation officially observes Veterans Day 2018. It was 100 years ago yesterday at 11 a.m. French time. The guns fell silent in what many then both ruefully and hopefully called the war to end all wars. Historians say that in many ways, World War I, along with perhaps Spendletop, brought Texas into the modern age. 200,000 Texans joined the armed forces, and 450 Texas women signed up to serve as nurses. And though their involvement was short-lived, ending a little over a year after Congress declared war in April 1917, the conflict was blamed for the deaths of at least 5,170 Texans. Among the places worth exploring when you have time, the U.S. Army Medical Department Museum at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas Military Forces Museum at Fort Mabry in Austin, And, of course, the Battleship Texas at the San Jacinto Battleground State Historic Site. Let's fast forward to 2018, and on this first Monday after elections, battles of a political sort being waged on some familiar fronts. The national news focusing on recounts in Florida for a Senate and governor's seat. Same thing in Georgia, where that governor's election is still up for grabs. But here in Texas, in what is geographically the biggest district in the U.S., we've got a contest that's still too close to call. We're talking about the Texas 23rd. Third, a congressional district that runs from Bear County all the way to the outskirts of El Paso, we knew this race would be tight, but within zero point three percentage points. Now what? Joining us now for the latest, Dylan McGinnis, government and politics reporter, San Antonio Express News. Dylan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, take us back to election night. The AP, along with several other news outlets, called the race for District Twenty-Three for the incumbent Republican Will Heard around eleven o'clock Texas time. Uh, Why and then what happened?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm not sure why they did. Uh, I'm guessing, obviously, their modeling suggested that he had a pretty comfortable victory. At the time, I think he had a lead of around four points, which, relative to past elections in this district, would be a pretty comfortable uh, victory. Fast forward a couple hours, around 2.30 AM, and it seems like, according to the state's results, that Gina Ortiz Jones has actually come back and pulled off an upset win. Uh, by a little less than 300 votes. Uh, We would learn later on that that was actually due to an error in Medina County that gave her back the lead uh, of of about 700 votes. So obviously seesawing a little bit there um, in a very, very tight race. Uh, So what they're doing now basically, they're not doing a recount like they are in Florida or Georgia, but they're doing, I guess what you could call a continuing count there are several types of ballots, provisional ballots, outstanding ballots, military ballots that aren't included in the Tuesday night vote. Uh-huh. So the Jones campaign is trying to make sure that, that all of those votes are counted so they can get uh, an understanding of where the race actually is. Does
0: this, I guess, each county does it differently, but are we talking about a hand count or are these done mechanically or electronically? Do you know?
2: Um, It's kind of a mixture. So most of these ballots are now paper ballots. Provisional ballots, obviously, are when someone shows up to the polls and there's either an issue, they didn't fulfill the ID requirements, or there was a registration uh, mix-up. They cast a paper ballot. Um, That's the same of those who mail in their ballots, or or what some people call absentee ballots. So these aren't the – Votes that people do on election day where they use the machine, right, touch screen. Right. I'm not sure, again, yeah, there's 29 counties in the district and they all do it differently. So I, I imagine some might use machines to count those and some might be doing yeah. it by hand. Well,
0: but, um, who, so uh, at the end of election night, who was ahead and uh, how was the other side uh, answering that?
2: Um, so Hurd was ahead at the, at the total end of election night by 689 votes. But again, this is, this is 3am on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, at, after 11pm, like you said, in the AP called the race, uh, Gina Jones appeared to come out and concede. Uh, it's Wednesday when, when she wakes up or I'm sure she might've been awake and realizes that this race is tighter than people imagined, um. Uh, that's when she comes out and says she's not conceding. She's going to make sure every vote is counted.
0: Uh, just to be clear, uh, what about uh, Will Hurd? Has he declared victory or not? Or no?
2: Yes, he declared victory on the night of when the race was called for him, and he declared victory again Wednesday morning, um, arguing that the final results show him leading. His margin has since grown to about 1,000 votes because uh, there was another error in Culberson County. Um, and the Bear County released another four hundred votes, um, so his leads around a thousand seventy votes right now. You know, they believe that's an insurmountable lead uh, for Jones to cover.
0: I was looking at Real Clear Politics; they have heard up by 0.3%. percent. Isn't there some critical point at which a recount would be ordered under law?
2: It is very narrow, and Gina Jones is uh, well within her her rights to request a recount if she wishes to do that after this full count is kind of done. In Texas, it's kind of different from other states. I don't believe there's an automatic recount. The margin that you need to be within is 10% of the winner's vote. In, that's, in that case, that's heard. It's a little over 100,000 votes so you need to be within 10,000 votes for Gina Ortiz-Jones to request a recount, and, and she's well within that. They're, they're just 1,000 votes apart.
0: Just a couple of seconds. Uh, any idea of when we're going to know the outcome here?
2: Uh, the counties have until November 20th to, to, to finalize their votes, so I'm told the last week of November is when we should have a final uh, clear picture. You can bet
0: Dylan McGinnis is keeping up with this when he covers government and politics for the San Antonio Express News. Dylan, thanks again.
2: Thank you. appreciate it.
0: On Friday, we told you about a federal appeals court affirming the state of Texas owes more than $30 million to the feds after cutting funding for special education. Now hear this. Disability rights advocates say they found documents which could put the state on the hook for $40 million more. And then some. Aliyah Swaby has been writing about this for the Texas Tribune, where she reports on public education. Aliyah, good to talk with you again. You too. So what exactly has happened? This discovery apparently comes in the immediate aftermath of a federal court uh, ruling?
3: Yes, so uh, Texas lost last week at the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is a New Orleans-based federal appeals court. Basically, they upheld a federal government decision to um, withhold $33 million from Texas um, on, on special education funding because Texas had illegally... Reduced the amount that it spent on special education in 2012. Mm-hmm. You know, the the court upheld the U.S. Department of Education's interpretation of a law that says that uh, states can't reduce the amount that they fund special education from year to year. And so, there's some advocates who found proof that Texas had actually, after after losing this uh, this case and you know, having their interpretation of that statute basically um, turned down, um, that Texas might have actually reduced special education funding again in 2017 um, from from 2016.
0: Right. And just to be clear, proof, of course, uh, we're really talking about uh, evidence here, that for their May application, the TEA acknowledged that it spent 41 almost $42 million less in 2017 than 2016. Why does the TEA say that it spent less?
3: So... The TEA's argument or Texas's argument as a state generally has been that it has reduced the amount of funding in dollars, but it hasn't reduced the financial support for students with disabilities because it's funding all of the needs that kids with disabilities have. So basically, Texas has a form of special education funding where it weights that funding. So it pays schools more to educate kids who have more severe disabilities or who need more personalized attention, so it's basically arguing that students just needed less expensive services in those years.
0: Well, now let's consider the implications here, because if in fact, uh, uh, you know, barring an appeal, and we don't yet know whether or not the state's going to appeal the decision on the 2012 spending that 33 million, if in fact this becomes a full-fledged lawsuit over the 41.6 million of you know from 2017 that's a huge hit to special education. Who pays for that? I mean, I don't just mean from Texas coffers. I mean, what about uh, kids who need money for special ed?
3: So, I mean, it, there are a lot of steps before there's another lawsuit. I think, you know, the the Department of Education would have to uh, flag that that funding decrease and then make a determination on whether they would withhold the same amount of funding. And then Texas, you know, if they did that, then Texas would have to decide um, whether they want to appeal that decision, which is basically what they did for the 2012 money. Um, Texas appealed in a sort of neutral hearing and then appealed that decision to a federal appeals court. And so that, that took several months. Um, So it's, so it's unclear now whether that same process will happen with the 416 million dollars from from 2017 the the 33 million dollars is just is three percent of the amount that uh, texas gets from the federal government for special education every year and so they have reassured um, lawmakers that it's not so much money that it would affect their special education programs um, and that they would actually be able to take the financial hit especially if as as could be the case it's uh spread out over several years instead of just taken mm-hmm. at once i
0: see what you're saying well obviously uh watch this space Elias swaby certainly is she covers education for the texas tribune texastribune.org alia thanks so much thank you Eric Austin, a.k.a. Eric, the awesome managing editor, KERA News, filling in for social media editor Wells Dunbar today. Got your heavy coat ready, Eric?
4: Burr, I can hear my teeth chattering up here in Dallas. Yeah, we can too. (laughs) Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow in Amarillo, David. Uh, Early season winter storm has dumped up to seven inches of the white stuff in the Texas panhandle. Yikes. National Weather Service says the heaviest snowfall was reported in and around Amarillo, but no injuries or significant damage reported so far as the storm is racing across the region. Temperatures in the 20s this morning up in Amarillo, David. How does that sound? That sounds cold. That sounds cold (laughs) right there. Uh, visibility Amarillo International down to half a mile earlier this morning and on Twitter the Texans are shivering and complaining uh, Elizabeth says I love this weather and the snow but I just hate driving on it and uh, she Bergen says today should be cancelled because of the snow um, Ryan Garcia though gives us some balance here it's just snow it ain't that bad calm down folks calm down um, <laughs> but Brian Murphy tells us my favorite thing about this weather is nothing nothing Brian sees no positives <laughs> on this. We want you to tweet us your weather pictures at Texas Standard. We'll share them throughout the air and we'll talk more about the weather later coming up, David, because it's yeah. cold
0: across the state. Yeah, I understand Dallas won't be having his Veterans Day parade downtown uh, this morning as planned because uh, I guess there was um, some concern about uh, severe weather during the event's time frame. We'd love to hear about your plans at Texas Standard. Eric Austin back in 35.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of WF Strong's Stories from Texas, some of them are true, at independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig and Book People, as well as Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown as the nation observes Veterans Day. Hope you're having a peaceful one. The Pentagon says 2,800 active duty U.S. troops have deployed to Texas, part of a total force of at least 5,200, President Trump ordered to the southern border in late October. This in response to a caravan of Central American migrants headed north. How's this playing out in our border towns? Well, Texas Public Radio's Carson Frame traveled to McAllen to see for herself.
5: Signs of a troop presence in the Rio Grande Valley are not hard to find. The Dona-Rio Bravo International Bridge spans the border between Dona, Texas and Rio Bravo in the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. In a field bordered by razor wire, square green tents sit neatly, in rows. A house-shaped steel frame awaits further construction, and several shipping containers rest in the grass. A uniformed man stands watch behind the wire, while others move around inside. And every few minutes, sand-colored vehicles rumble in and out. About 20 miles west, people crossing at the McAllen-Hidalgo port of entry have noticed concertina wire on the riverbank and strung up on the international bridge. Active duty troops set it up recently. Some locals, like Eba AlTusar have seen them doing military drills in the area of the bridge.
3: Yeah, they've been doing simulations. They get formed up, lined up, and they're going through the drills, but I don't exactly know what they're doing as far as exercises are concerned. Altusar is a
5: Mexican citizen living in Reynosa, directly across the bridge. Speaking through an interpreter, she says she crosses once or twice a week to go shopping. Altusar says with the growing number of migrants waiting to cross the border and the arrival of troops, she's concerned it could lead to conflict.
3: I'm really worried, so I'm watching TV to see what's going on. I'm worried about
5: violence. But Roberto Ruiz, another Reynosa resident, says the troops are a stabilizing presence. Yo
6: I think troops along the border is good because we have a lot of people coming from Central America and a lot of people that come with gangs. We have problems with them. There's going to be problems in Mexico.
5: In neighboring Texas towns like West Laco, some Americans also welcome the troops, who have had a presence on the roads, at the local airport and on TV. Thelma Anciso has children in the military and says she feels calmer knowing that active duty soldiers are patrolling the ports. I pray for them every day. They're protecting us. It feels good. I feel secure with him here. But activists say local residents have little to fear from people crossing the border. Mike Seifert of the ACLU says many Rio Grande Valley residents assume the troops are there because of a pressing threat. It's like the old proverb, he says, where there's smoke,
7: there's got to be fire.
5: Seifert says some of his fellow activists conducted a survey in the Texas border town of Edinburgh.
7: And essentially the question was, do you feel safe? And the response, a lot of them were like, were well, no. And yeah, have you witnessed or been a victim of crime? And they were like, no, 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 but we see so many troops and police and border patrol, something must be going on.
5: A handful of activist groups in McAllen have been protesting what they call the militarization of the border. Scott Nickel is with one of those groups, the Sierra Club. He says the deployment is a political stunt designed to whip up fear. You know, you have
8: helicopter landings, troops in riot gear, marching across the bridge. You know they have an audience of one in the White House uh, who has said that he thinks the concertina wire looks beautiful. You know I honestly I think that this whole deployment is a fairly despicable show.
5: Pentagon officials say the active duty troops will be working to support the border patrol but will not be interacting with migrants crossing the border. They'll be doing engineering, aviation and medical tasks. Five public affairs units have also been deployed to distribute photos and video. This is Carson Frame reporting.
0: Our coverage was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. What is the cause of Alzheimer's disease? It's the most common type of dementia, and officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say as many as 5 million Americans were living with it in 2014. There's been a lot of research on Alzheimer's, but no simple explanation for it, obviously. Well, James Truchard wants to change that. He's an Austinite and the former president, chairman, co-founder, and CEO of National Instruments. He's just given $5 million to the UT San Antonio College of Sciences to be used as prize money in hopes of incentivizing an explanation for Alzheimer's. Dr. Truchard joins us for today's Spotlight on Health. Thanks for your time. We appreciate you joining us on the Texas Standard.
8: You're welcome.
0: I understand this research is rather personal to you. Why did you want to invest in explaining Alzheimer's?
8: My first wife passed away from an aneurysm with a decline in mental health over an 18-year period, and her ending the last five years was uh, very much like Alzheimer's. So, And we know that Alzheimer's is a tremendous challenge for the caregivers, the spouses, and that disease, which we've made no progress in the last 111 years, so we need to move the needle, and I'm hoping to find somebody who can give us a better starting point in understanding Alzheimer's, and hopefully with that understanding, we can uh, make progress on treatments for it. Now, just to be clear,
0: you're not expecting scientists to do more experiments. You're actually asking them to synthesize what's already out there on Alzheimer's? Why?
8: Well, we have 130,000 papers that have been published And each one is working on a very narrow aspect of uh, the brain and its science. And what we need is somebody who can aggregate this information, just like uh, someone like Einstein did in creating the theory of general relativity, Mm. or Darwin did in looking at evolution.
0: I see. That would seem to me to suggest that perhaps you think that there is a sort of basic explanation for Alzheimer's, or perhaps that there is an underlying principle that needs to be explored.
8: Exactly, and it probably needs aggregation. We have to look at a a big picture, as well as the very fine details that have been studied for the last uh, 111 years.
0: You know, it, it, what strikes me about this is that when you think about the way that the Academy approaches some of these problems, it's often, you know, you're working toward making that small discovery that uh, is worthy of publication in one of the research journals, for example.
8: Exactly. And, and I, and I and
0: wonder if you, if you sort of spotted something in the private sector that, that you felt like was missing in that process.
8: In the private sector, you have a fundamental reason to get to the bottom line, here, it may be very difficult to publish an explanation that doesn't involve new original research. So, uh, whereas as a business, you don't worry about whether it's original or not, you just worry about whether you can make money. Mm -hmm. And so you take a more pragmatic approach, and hopefully that's what we'll do in this prize as well these prizes
0: seem huge two million dollars for the grand prize winner uh, you think that's going to attract top talent and, and how long you think it might be before you're giving away that prize money
8: basically we're looking at a two-year time frame start taking applications in February we're hoping that we can find some genius somewhere that can do like Einstein did and come up with the right answer they may be famous they may be, somebody we've never heard of before. There are no rules on that.
0: Dr. James Truchard started the Oscar Fisher Project in search of a focus for studying Alzheimer's. He co-founded National Instruments and served as its president, CEO, and chairman for many years. Dr. Truchard, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard.
8: You're welcome, appreciate the opportunity.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from RAND Group, Providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com.
9: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. Governor Greg Abbott says about 200 Texas firefighters are heading to Southern California today. They'll help battle the Woolsey Fire burning northwest of Los Angeles that's left at least two people dead. A separate blaze in Northern California called the Camp Fire has killed at least 29 people, making it the deadliest wildfire in that state in more than 80 years. US Senator Ted Cruz of Texas says there's no need to protect the Mueller investigation under the new acting attorney general who has long been critical of the probe. Matthew Whitaker took over for Jeff Sessions who was forced out after constant criticism from President Donald Trump. Special Counsel Robert Mueller has been investigating whether the Trump campaign may have conspired with the Russians during the 2016 presidential election. Cruz appeared on the CBS News program Face the Nation Sunday just days after winning re-election to a second term in the Senate. He said there should not be legislation to safeguard the ongoing investigation. We
0: had a bill come through the Judiciary Committee that tried to make it impossible for a special counsel to be removed. I believe that legislation was unconstitutional, that it was inconsistent with Article 2 of the Constitution.
9: Article 2 of the Constitution establishes the executive branch of the federal government that includes outlining presidential powers and limits on those powers. A Texas congressman-elect appeared on Saturday Night Live this weekend where he had the chance to get back at a cast member who mocked his appearance the week before. Republican Dan Crenshaw, who is set to represent Texas's second congressional district, wears an eye patch due to an injury sustained during an IED blast in Afghanistan. Pete Davidson apologized to the former Navy SEAL during the show.
10: Last week uh, I made a joke about a picture of you and I feel like uh, it would only be fair if you got me back and made fun of a picture of me. Does that sound Okay. I,
2: I don't really need to do that.
10: No, come on. I, I deserve it. All right, I'll do it. Please? One. All right. Okay. And now, first impressions with Lieutenant Commander Dan Crenshaw. Thanks, Colin. This is Pete Davidson. He looks like if the meth from Breaking Bad was a person.
9: After cracking a few more jokes at Davidson's expense, Crenshaw also shared a more serious message. He said Americans can forgive one another, and he added given that's Veterans Day weekend, it's a good time to connect with someone who is served.
10: Tell a veteran, never forget. When you say never forget to a veteran, you are implying that as an American, you are in it with them, not separated by some imaginary barrier between civilians and veterans but connected together as grateful fellow Americans.
9: Veterans Day was Sunday, but the government holiday is observed today. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Texas nurse practitioners celebrating National NP Week, November 11th to 17th. Texas is home to over 21,000 nurse practitioners, providing high-quality care to Texans every day. Information at texasnp.org.
6: 33
0: minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Well, it's nearly a week later, and the dust is still settling after the midterms. Many are calling Election Day 2018 an historic moment, but not so much TCU history professor Max Krukmall. He is the author of Blue Texas, the making of a multiracial democratic coalition in the civil rights era. Max, welcome back to the Texas Standard.
10: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: As I understand, uh, you contend this moment is not historic not even by texas standards
10: well it is and it isn't um i think it's historic in the sense that that we may look back at this as a very large turning point it was uh, certainly a a very positive series of trends for the democratic party in texas Uh, but i think what that what that headline of uh, an article i recently published suggests is that there is a a deeper history uh, that is often overlooked
0: uh, deeper history, you mean, um, we we perhaps focus too much on the fact that Tarrant County uh, appeared to turn blue and a Democrat came within a stone's throw of winning the race for Senate. But we don't think so much about the changes that happened, what, 40, 50 years ago in this state.
10: Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm a historian, so I, I was driving at that, that, you know, the, the shift in Tarrant County, I think, is very significant. Uh, but, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, there was first, you know, the politics of Texas was different. It was a solid Democratic state, but there was within that a liberal faction of the Democratic Party that was multiracial, multiethnic, and it was committed to civil rights, uh, to liberal politics, and and to labor rights. And um, and it came together in the 1960s and presented a, a formidable challenge to the state's more conservative. Uh, at the time, Democratic establishment.
0: We should uh, note here that liberal can be a very slippery word, especially if you don't have much of a, con- a historical context for what liberal means. But what you're suggesting is that during the days of the so-called Solid South, to use your terminology there, uh, when you, if if you were a Democrat, you uh, uh, tended to lean um, far more conservatively, certainly, than Democrats do today. In fact, we might even think of a Democrat back in the 60s, I'm talking about a mainstream Southern Democrat, as uh, more of what we might uh, imagine a Republican in Texas to be today, right?
10: Yeah, yeah, that last part's definitely accurate. You know, the, to be a Democrat in the South uh, in the mid-century, mid-20th century could mean anything, really. It was the only show in town. So you, one couldn't be elected dog catcher unless you were uh, a Democrat. So what we saw in Texas and, and other parts of the South was a split within the Democratic Party between uh, a faction of self-identified liberals who saw themselves as as loyal to Franklin Roosevelt and and the National Democratic Party who wanted to bring New Deal style liberalism to the South. So that's one faction of the Democratic Party. But then the dominant faction uh, were a group of, of sometimes called Dixiecrats, uh-huh. right? groups of uh, conservative, often segregationists, close ties to, to business elites. And so what happened in Texas in the 1950s and 60s is that various factions who wanted uh, a more liberal state, whether that was sort of white liberals who, who had that New Deal liberalism, African-American civil rights activists, Mexican-American civil rights activists, or trade unionists, they all came together in a push for political power and also uh, in in terms of supporting each other's movements uh, on the ground.
0: We've all heard about Jim Crow in the South. Texas had its own sort of Juan Crow you've
10: written. Yeah, correct. You know, Texas built a system of, of Juan Crow that was very much rooted in um, state power, in in laws, uh, in legal enforcement, um, and in public institutions, for example, schools were often segregated in South and West Texas, uh, very clearly between Anglo neighborhoods and and Mexican neighborhoods. There were so-called Mexican schools, and you know, just by virtue of having a Spanish surname, you couldn't be admitted into into the Anglo white school. And if you uh, you know, for many Mexican Americans, if they if they stepped out of their prescribed place, they would face, uh, you know, arrest or, or mob violence or um, state-sanctioned violence. So it was very much a, a, a system in, the same, in a similar manner.
0: So tie that to what happened on uh, Tuesday last. I mean, how, does, how do you see the echoes in the resonance?
10: So what we what we saw, on think, on Tuesday was that um, the, the budding resistance over the last couple of years is is coming into its own. So in the 1960s, the the liberal wing of the Democratic Party formed something they called the Democratic Coalition. It brought together these different groups of, of social movement activists uh, who were working in the streets and also in the political arena at the, at the ballot box. And so what we saw, I think, on Tuesday was that uh, a lot of organizing that's been taking place on the ground in the last two years uh, since Trump's election, the the indivisible chapters that have cropped up in every congressional district, the, the immigrant rights movement that's been led by young people uh, fighting uh, SB4, the the show me your papers bill out of the state legislature, mm-hmm. um, the growing Black Lives Matter movement on the ground, all these different elements, LGBT struggles for rights against the bathroom bill, they all came together uh, and directed some of their energy into Beto's campaign and into the Democratic push. And I think that's that's what's historic about Tuesday.
0: Max Krockmall is history professor at TCU and author of Blue Texas, The Making of a Multiracial Democratic Coalition in the Civil Rights Era. Max, thanks
10: again. Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
7: name is Jack London. I grew up in Texas, except for the time I spent in the Army. I have always lived in Texas, and I'm the director of writing education for the Military Writers Society of America. November 11th was the day of the armistice that ended World War I. At the end of the war, the United States engaged in the largest and in the most deadly battle in the history of the United States. It was called the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. More than 1,200,000 American soldiers occupied a space smaller than Travis County, fighting against about 62 divisions, fragmented divisions, of German soldiers who occupied that same space. The cemetery that was erected there is called the Muse Gun Cemetery. It is the largest American military cemetery in Europe. It has 14,500 men who are buried there. Of that number, more than 500 are from Texas. I discovered it several years ago when I wrote an article called Gold Star Mothers. Those are women whose sons or whose husbands have died in battle. And in the 1930s, the army put together a program to take the mothers and the widows of men who had died in World War I and whose bodies had not been brought back. My grandmother was one of them. And they took these women, took 8,000 of them to France, completely free, from railroad tickets to spending money to steamship to hotel, and one by one took them out to these cemeteries in France. This year we will go to the Musar Gun Cemetery. Part of the time my wife and I and our friends will spend going to every grave and we'll put a flag on, an American flag and appropriate a Texas flag on their graves and we'll take a photograph of it. And we will try the best we can to honor men who are utterly forgotten 100 years later. I'm Jack London, I'm the author of French Letters children of a good war, and you're listening to The Texas Standard.
0: you got to tune to The Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has been at the center of American political conversation of late, with concerns among folks on the left and right about What's often characterized as the ideological balance of the court, as if you needed more evidence, consider how it's part of the backdrop to concerns about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's recent injury. But one may fairly wonder just how different our concerns and considerations about the court might be today. Were it not for the role of one justice in particular, a certain individual who took office 117 years ago, a new book helps us understand why. John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court. The author is Richard Brookhiser. If you know that name, you may recall he is senior editor of the National Review. Richard, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard.
11: Thanks for having me.
0: You've written about presidents in the past. Why did you want to turn your attention to this giant uh, of the Supreme Court?
11: Well, he was close personally and ideologically to several of the men I'd already written about. Uh, He was Nominated uh, for the post of Chief Justice by John Adams. Uh, He was a friend and admirer of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, But most important, John Marshall admired George Washington. He thought he was the rock on which the Revolution rested. And he also agreed with Washington's politics. Why do you think,
0: you know, it's when you think about the founding fathers, I think a case could be easily made that John Marshall ranks right up there, even though obviously he, uh, he's not one of those
11: uh, household name founding fathers. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, partly he's not on the presidential placemats. Um, we focus on people who were famous enough to make it on the money. The court is a little harder to grapple with. It seems more technical. Uh, It's also somewhat of a recessive branch because it has to sit there and wait for a case to reach it. Do you think Marshall
0: lives all these years later?
11: Well, certainly the economic system that he helped put in place, we still have. When we think of it, we associate it maybe more with Alexander Hamilton, particularly Mm -hmm. after after the musical. But, you know, he planned a lot of the financial machinery. But there also had to be legal principles sustaining that system. So in that sense, he's certainly still with us. The other, uh, the obvious way in which he's still with us is that we're having this radio conversation, right? I mean, if the Supreme Court was less important I wouldn't have written this book and, and you wouldn't have me on to talk about it. And you know we wouldn't have had this big fight about uh, now Justice Kavanaugh or the fights about you know uh, Clarence Thomas, Robert Bork before that. Um, why is this so important? Why is this so vital? Well, because the Supreme Court acquired a position as a peer of the presidency and of the Congress. Mm-hmm. But that was not what it had when it first set out right. in the 1790s. Right. And I'll give you the, the best benchmark when the, the vacancy arises in the Supreme Court, which John Marshall will ultimately fill. Mm-hmm. And this is in the lame duck of the Adams administration. <laughs> right. Adams has already lost the election of 1800 to Thomas Jefferson. Right. There's gonna be a new president of a different party. The man he offers that he thinks of is the man who first held it John Jay. He was chief justice from 1789 to 95. Mm-hmm. So, Adams sends Jay's name to the Senate. The Senate confirms him. Then he gets a letter from Jay saying, "I'm not going to take the job because it it lacks dignity." This is what Jay says. It's to amazing defend, when the you whole think federal about it, right. judiciary lacks dignity. Right, right. You know, so there's Adams sitting in his uh, office in the still Uncompleted White House. I mean, the, the the shell of the building is up, but the inside's a construction site. And he's he's sitting in there with uh, with his Secretary of State John Marshall, and he says, "Who shall I pick now?" And Marshall says, <laughs> "I don't know, sir." Then Adams thinks and he says, "I think I'll pick you." So this, <laughs> so this is how John Marshall gets his job because John Jay didn't want it anymore, and he and, makes
0: it into the institution yes he, he is today.
11: You know, he's there for 34 years. He also herds all his cats on the Supreme Court. I mean, you mentioned the partisan balance of it. Right. When Marshall comes on, there're only six justices. They're all federalists. Within 11 years, the balance has changed to thanks to retirement and death and replacements, mm-hmm. two federalists and five republicans. Mm-hmm. They they also added a seat. So that's a big partisan shift. But lo and behold, all these new justices most of the time find themselves agreeing with John Marshall. And that's, you know, that's partly because he's charming. Seems like he was a wonderful guy. Uh, One of his fellow justices said, Joseph Story said, I love his laugh. Um, William Wirt, who would become attorney general, he said, Marshall's mind was like the Atlantic Ocean, everybody's else else's mind was like a pond (laughs) it's a story
0: about a man but it's also in many respects a story about america richard brookheiser is the author he's senior editor of national review and the title of his new book is john marshall the man who made the supreme court richard thanks for spending a few minutes
1: with us on the texas standard thank you Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. As we continue to think about the implications of the midterms, you want the good news or the, uh, I don't know, maybe not so good first? Well, let's look at it from a positive light for a moment. In a state that's notorious for its low levels of turnout, especially in years without a presidential contest, 2018 has been described as a new high-water mark with a turnout of over 50 percent of registered voters, which raises a question about the flip side. What about the others, almost half of all registered voters? Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies wanted to know why they chose not to rock the vote.
6: In the 1990s, MTV worked really hard to make voting cool. They drafted their trend setting video stars like Ozzy Osbourne, remember your vote is your voice, and Madonna,
1: get up and vote! Dun, 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 dun.
6: To deliver that rock to vote message.
1: And if you don't vote, you're going to
4: get a spanky.
6: It does seem strange that any ad campaign would be needed to persuade people to vote. It's in each individual's best interest to help elect someone who will work on their behalf. But Michael Walker, a student at San Antonio College, doesn't see it that way.
2: I just don't really like the government. I don't really believe in it, honestly. I kind of just feel like once you have a predetermined like result,
6: I don't really see the purpose in it. Caleb Williams was also at San Antonio College, but he was there as a campaign volunteer for Democrat Beto O'Rourke. He's had more than his share of dialogues with loud and proud non-voters. They view their act of choosing not to vote as as an act of rebellion. As Williams spoke, he'd bang his pen on his clipboard for emphasis.
7: Don't tread on me. That is an inalienable right.
6: And that's uh, the sort of thing that I feel like uh, even like non-voters, if they realized how much of a stick-it-to-the-man thing voting can be, they might get out there and vote a little bit more. Williams was emotionally invested in helping O'Rourke win the Senate race, and he, like many others, were undoubtedly brokenhearted when that didn't happen. On election night, perhaps, Democratic voters like Williams felt like they had just been dumped by democracy. When the final election numbers came in, and Republican Ted Cruz was declared the victor, perhaps they felt like democracy was telling them, it's not you, it's me, but we can still be friends. They felt crushed by democracy. And even worse, they had to watch democracy then walk off arm in arm with Cruz. They grieved. They wondered what went wrong and what could they have done differently? And who needs that pain? So for some of them, just give up completely
8: the ones that are running, and you have all your faith in them. And actually, when you vote for them, they don't do nothing for you. They forget about you so easy like you weren't
6: even there. On election day, I ran into Oscar Valenzuela at the bus stop at Travis Park. He said he used to vote, but not anymore. Valenzuela said he voted for Barack Obama for president, and he wrote letters to him and Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts explaining the problem that his family was having. But he received no response
8: which was very very hurting for me my feelings were very hurt you know because i depended on the president
6: all valenzuela really wanted was to be acknowledged there's nothing more valuable than giving someone our time and attention many of us want to make voting an intellectual transaction and it is but voting is also a major emotional investment we keep telling people that their vote is so important that it has all this value, then why should we expect anyone to just give it away to some candidate that doesn't even respect them or even see them? When I met Marcel Esteto, he was with his family at a picnic table at Woodlawn Lake. Esteto made it clear that he was an unabashed non-voter. It's just totally not cool because why would you want to select somebody that is lying to you? He was convinced that the politicians are in it just to enrich themselves and they don't care about the people. His view is that politics is a dirty business that contaminates anyone who comes in contact with it. But I suspect there's more to Esteto's reasoning. Certainly not all politicians are self-serving toads. Maybe if he sat down with the right candidate and talked, he'd reconsider this view. Maybe if Texas made voting easier, he'd give it a try and realize that it's not so bad. We hear all the time that every vote counts, but even those votes that don't get cast, they also count. The people who don't vote, they count too, and they're counting on the mercies of the system and those in power that they will do the right thing for all of the people, the voters and the non-voters alike. In San Antonio, David Martin Davies for The Texas Standard. And you are listening to The Texas Standard.
0: Eric Austin is filling in for our social media editor, Wells Dunbar, today. Eric's managing editor at KERA News, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, how you doing today, Eric?
4: Well, I'm still shivering. David. Yeah, yeah, still oh, I cold. Totally It's understand. Sweater weather weather. Sweater weather, sweater and it's actually... Weather winter coat weather right now. I'm looking mm-hmm. at a map of Texas from the National Weather Service. Yes, sir. and And David, it's covered in a deep, deep purple. I'm not talking politics. No. I'm just sticking to the weather right now. Um, cold weather in Amarillo, snow this morning, as we talked about earlier in the show, uh, but a freeze warning throughout much of the state tonight. That includes Dallas-Fort Worth and Austin and the San Antonio areas, and even down in far south Texas in the Corpus Christi area. Really? Uh, a freeze watch, to be precise, a freeze watch in the southern part of the state, but that includes uh, Victorian over to Laredo. So a reminder to check on your elderly neighbors, and um, you know, get the pets indoors, and uh, you, the plants that can't survive the freeze, bring that inside. Bring all those plants inside. Do
0: David. up those so, pipes too, because that's something that a lot of people forget about. You know, you indeed, good wrap those things.
4: You're like Heloise. Uh Helpful hints from Heloise. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and and also drip your faucets, uh, drip your faucets just a little bit overnight uh, when it's freezing um, or below freezing to, to help avoid pipe issues. Yeah, you know, um, folks from
0: up north laugh at us talking about this stuff like it's you know like the the like the floor is going to fall out of the earth or something. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, yes, we'll get we'll have a freeze, right? I mean, yeah, we, and we take the normal precautions, but let's not all you know get too up in arms about it. That's
4: I think that's the that's some, perspective, some perspective. Some perspective. Texas, you know, Texas in the south, we're not used to this cold cold weather up north they're not used to the heat so everyone gets their taste and yeah, turn of making true. fun of each other that's true. Uh, christian rhodes says on twitter just because there's snow on the ground does not mean that you christmas people can force christmas music on us. So <laughs> it's keep, happening keep already by mind. the way i mean there are some <laughs> radio
0: stations that have already flipped to all christmas music
4: i'm same thing in Dallas. I'm not quite ready for it. After Thanksgiving, fine. But in November, early November, no thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, Becky Fogle mentioned the SNL uh, deal over the weekend with yeah. uh, Lieutenant Commander see Dan that? Crenshaw. Yeah, that was really moving and really nice and widely praised from all sorts of folks across the political spectrum. Uh, Bliss and TX on Twitter says, So thankful for adults willing to forgive and move on. Uh, Bloop says, This was the best way they could have settled this dispute. It's genius. It's genius. And the real hermit on Twitter saying Crenshaw showed a lot of class. It was a great moment for both. Um, David, really moving us, uh, you know, a scene and segment on Weekend Update over the weekend. We've, we've tweeted it out at Texas Standard if you want to check it out. And by the way, David, Dallas Cowboys won the heated rivalry against the Philly Eagles 27 20. How about Houston, that? Houston Texans had a bye week though.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if we should mention the Longhorns versus Texas Tech, but I think uh, some people are saying that. Uh, that Texas could wind back up in the top 10. Uh, We shall see. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast, but the news continues at texasstandard.org. Eric Austin has been filling in for Wells Dunbar social media editor. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, I'm David Brown. Hope you can join us again tomorrow.
1: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family.
6: PRI Public Radio International